Hey everybody, welcome to Revolutionary Relationships, a podcast here to support you in your emotional, your relational, and your spiritual evolution. Yes, and if you don't know, we are your hosts, Kara and Caleb, and we are so glad that you are here. This is gonna be the best day ever. This is gonna be the best day ever. Wake up. Hello, hello, hello. Oh, hey. Welcome back to another episode of Revolutionary Relationships. If you don't know, we're your hosts. <laughs> Kara and Caleb. <laughs> That's us. We're Kara and Caleb. We're uh, so glad you're here. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. And I don't think we've ever said this, actually, but we should say it more. But for all of you who are listening, yes. thank you. Yeah, thank thanks you. Thanks for showing up and being here with us. Thanks for joining us. If if we could invite you over to sit in our living room and chat with us, we would. Absolutely. Maybe we'll do that at some point. Absolutely. Caleb and I, before uh, before the pandemic, were hosting dinner parties called Connect Dinners, where we invited a bunch yeah. of strangers to come and have intentional conversation. And Those we were fun. really, really miss that. Didn't somebody just recently reach out to you and say that yes. they... What was that about? Oh, it was so beautiful. She said she came to a dinner and we had asked an intentional question at dinner and it en- ended up turning into this beautiful long conversation but she said it really shifted her life like she started asking intentional conversations with her friends it actually led to a more intentional conversation with the person she was dating which opened up their relationship and she was just talking about how much gratitude she had for for that space to really dive in with people that's beautiful i I love it i love it ah this has been an incredible week yeah some major milestones have happened I feel like it's been the um, the culmination of so much work, mm. so many years of all of these things, like so many years of not necessarily seeing where this is leading. Mm. Of like, I'm talking about my life here. Your journey. My journey of like seeing where this is leading, but knowing that I'm just, I'm honoring a truth that I feel in me mm. where it doesn't make logical sense. I don't necessarily understand it, but it's just, I can feel the the longing pulling me forward yeah, and it's a journey of, of essentially just stumbling forward and falling forward. Um, but this week I feel like has been a week where it's all kind of coming together and for the, f- like not for the first time, but in a really big way, I'm like, holy shit, like it all belongs and mm-hmm. it's, it's here. It's clear. Um, I don't know. I, I said this to you earlier, but I'm like really, really proud of myself. Yeah. I'm I don't so care how that gets interpreted, but I'm really proud of myself because I'm thinking back of like all of the days that I've completely given up on myself, given up on this journey, said to hell with it, you know, <laughs> you know, like I, I want out, mm. I want out. Um, but even those moments of great despair are part of the journey. Absolutely. There's something so spiritual that's happening in your heart, yeah, um, a letting go, a surrendering that that great despair and hopelessness is actually part of the journey. Yeah, and that's clear now. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like you're starting to see the puzzle pieces kind of come into alignment. Yeah, I think the one thing that we've talked about that that feels so significant is this idea that the the grief and the hard really belongs, like For the sure. the the pits of despair that we find ourselves in that feel like we're never going to climb out and we can't get through and we can't see through the fog are actually such a massive part yeah. <laughs> of the belonging of our journey. 
<laughs> we are so excited about uh, this week's episode. Honestly, this is probably one of my favorite conversations you loved I've it. had in such a long time. I think I love conversations that that are the integration of two different realms or things yeah. that we see as different realms. And in today's episode, we kind of integrate spirituality with, with science yeah. in a really, really profound way. And I I mean, Kelsey's just brilliant. She She's is. Like so so smart so talking she had to the her, coolest glasses as well i know she's those. she's done such amazing we'll talk about all the amazing things that she's done uh but i just remember seeing her as soon as she i was like your glasses are amazing yeah, you had you had glasses crush immediately <laughs> no she's incredible and i there's so many things that i loved about this conversation um I have to talk briefly and we can do a, a fuller journey on this. I can honestly say uh, that microdosing psilocybin uh, shifted my life in a very profound way, mm -hmm. a very, very profound way where I do believe that with the, um, with the psilocybin, with the microdose, along with the integration work mm -hmm. uh, that I was doing, this illusion of separation, that this distance between where I am and where I want to be, mm -hmm. um, it dissolved. Yeah. It disintegrated, right? And yeah. then I remember, and I think I allude to it in this in this podcast, but getting out of the car in the driveway, and I had this moment where I was like, holy shit. I felt this like massive shift in my life and it was just a subtle moment of getting out of the car and shutting and shutting the door mm. and i was like i'm here, here I am. i'm like here i am like i was like i, I i'm here now mm. and it it really was this moment where i did recognize that the ground that i've been trying to attain and i say this often the ground that i've been trying to attain through hustle and performance and striving and doing more and achieving more and going faster and going longer has been the ground that I've been standing on this entire time. Mm -hmm. And you can't, you can intellectually ascend to that place maybe and maybe. understand it conceptually. But when you feel that, yeah. when there is this inner shift and this deep knowing that as birth inside of you as a result of experiencing that. Yeah. Oh my God. I think it really is the experience of, of being connected to the, 100%. To, 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 to all, right. It's the oneness. It's the oneness. And we talk a little bit about that in this episode, this idea of the oneness, but on today's episode, we're talking about psilocybin. Yeah. That's why I brought that up. <laughs> we're talking about psilocybin. We're talking about psychedelics for the purpose of healing, yeah. for the purpose of, um, intentionally connecting to the divine. And Kelsey is well, just is connecting to our life, connecting to our life. Yes. Yeah. And Kelsey is really, really brilliant. So, so what I love about this, this conversation is that, um, so often, like, I think that <laughs> if, if there's a misunderstanding about drugs, uh, it, yeah. people just make a ton of assumptions, right? Like yeah. don't do drugs. And, uh, Kelsey's really standing on the forefront of research, medical yes. research around yes. the healing properties of psychedelics. of psychedelics. And we get into some really incredible data, some really incredible research that's happening around psychedelics. And this is, this is big time research. This is like John Hopkins research. This isn't, you know, out in, out in the woods somewhere. It's actual medical studies, which is really profound to hear, hear the breakdown of, of what's happening in the scientific community around the possibility yeah. with with these beautiful substances that have been used for centuries by indigenous people and by so many people groups. And and she talks a lot about that. But it's a really incredible conversation around 
what's possible yeah. with and these new modalities, not new, with these modalities. We talk a little bit about the future of microdosing, and we also talk, which I think is incredibly important, um, how do you know if psychedelics are right for you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I say in my own experience that I didn't choose psychedelics or in, in this in regard microdosing psilocybin as much as I felt like it, it chose me, yeah. it came to me. Um, and it Which wasn't a like lot of people's experience. Right. And I love the work that's happening here because I think if you're unfamiliar with it, it's like, Oh, psychedelics, you're tripping the, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you think of a certain picture or mm-hmm. you have an idea when we say psychedelics and, this was a very, very sacred, my, my experience with psychedelics and just a, in regards to microdosing was a very sacred and a very spiritual act mm-hmm. where I was, you know, setting intentions. I was sitting still. I was meditating. I was going into um, intentionally asking, leaning into, absolutely. For, yeah. There was intention behind it, right? It wasn't like, oh, let's pop a microdose <laughs> and see where we land up today. It's not, you know? let's go to a rave and it, pop it. Yeah. Acid. It's not that. Um, so we, we cover a lot in this episode and I know you are just going to get something uh, from it. Uh, but to give you a little bit more context about Kelsey and all the amazing work that she's doing, uh, in the description to this podcast, her full bio is uh, listed. Mm. Um, but just so that you understand, Kelsey has had over 15 years of founding, scaling, and operating in a, innovative companies across Canada, the Caribbean. Uh, Kelsey Ramsden is, is globally recognized for building multiple multi-million dollar businesses. She's twice earned the honor of being named Canada's top female entrepreneur and serves on the Entrepreneurship Council for the University of Western Ontario. Kelsey is a renowned thought leader and published author and holds an MBA from the Richard Ivey School of Business at the University of Western Ontario. She's clearly done so much and the list goes on, uh, but what we kind of talk about here as well is she's also the president and the CEO of a company called MindCure. Uh, she is such a boss. She is such, <laughs> a, boss. such a boss. So MindCure, uh, MindCure is a company whose mission is to identify and develop products that ease suffering, increase productivity, and enhance mental health. It was born in part as a response to the mental health crisis and the need to find effective treatments in areas beyond psychiatry. So these include digital therapeutics, neural supports, and psychedelics. Yes, and we talk about all of this and more in the podcast. Again, you're going to get something from this, and we ask it every time, but if this podcast uh, blesses you, uh, if you would just rate and leave a review on the podcast, that would mean the absolute world to us. And also, if you think of somebody who you uh, who comes up as you're listening to this and who you might think will benefit from this conversation, uh, it would mean the world to us if you just forward them this conversation. Yeah, and if you've had a really profound experience with psychedelics or a really healing experience, we'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. Uh, and yeah, so here's what Kelsey has to say. Is plant medicine legal in Canada? Like, well, we can go through like a shades of gray situation. Yeah. So, um, is it legal? No. Uh, is like in Vancouver, they decrimmed possession for personal use. Mm-hmm. So we have decrim there. Toronto's advancing the decrim piece. Um, there is something up here called a section 56 exemption, which is like the government's 
kind of loophole uh, on both sides. So it's a way for the government to say, yes, you can do that. But, Mm. you know, it's a one of we don't really support this. But in this particular case, sure. But don't hold us to it. Um, and then, you know, on the flip side, it gives people access. So that's how the first psilocybin journey started happening up here was section 56s and patients who had terminal cancer predominantly. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's, that's kind of where things sit up here. And then when we think about like the spectrum of like psychedelic drugs, molecules, medicines, uh, Ibogaine is unscheduled in Canada. So it's the only one on the kind of menu that doesn't hold that kind of same, um, I don't know, that same scheduled taboo up mm. here. But that's that's where things sit currently. Yeah. Of course, we're all in the game to change that. But yeah. yeah. And yeah. I, I'm assuming it's different in the States because it's not, it's decriminalized in certain cities, right? Yeah, just yeah. now recently. Just recently. Portland or Oregon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think Colorado, California yeah. is making its way. Yeah, definitely not Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> They're not even okay with weed. <laughs> That's not happening. Okay. Yeah, I mean, up here, it's... So when we saw cannabis happen in Canada, generally, Canada tends to go, like, federal and then provincial, whereas in the States, it's, like, state and then federal, maybe. Uh, so that's kind of how things progress here. So in Canada, most folks are looking to the federal government for guidance to advance access to psychedelic medicine. Um, But up here, no one is really pushing for this idea of like selling it at the local cannabis shop. Everyone's still pretty about doing the research and keeping it clinical. And, but there again, you know, decriminalizing for the folks who are carrying, but not that we want to start selling psychedelics at the corner store. Um, Which, you know, I have to say like on a personal level, I get behind pretty strongly. I feel like psychedelics are like putting someone with a learner's license behind the wheel of a Ferrari. It's Mm. a little bit, it's a bit different than like smoking a joint and like maybe vomiting. Yeah. You know, like that's the extent of the kind of the worst case scenario. But I think if you put someone in it, like five gram dose of psilocybin journey without the right structure and support of people who understand how to do that work, you can wind yeah. up with a lot of um, outcomes that would not yeah. be just being sick to your stomach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I think, I think, it, and also in particular, when we think about the risk and reward profile of what's at hand is this idea that a lot of these psychedelics carry some form of narrative from a past time yeah. yes. that society is holding on to. And I don't think that anyone in the industry wants to have those kind of narratives um, carried forward. So yeah. we don't want these things, you know, we don't want to hear the story of the person who heard that five grams of mushrooms could cure their depression and then went and did it on their own in their basement and they weren't properly screened and, yeah. you know, they have a history in their family of um, borderline personality disorder, and then they have a psychotic break. And then it's, you know, like, yeah. I yeah. think there's too much at hand with the potential of these molecules to do real good. And mm-hmm. uh, that, yeah, I'm certainly of the position that, you know, folks should be working with well-trained therapists in clinical settings mm-hmm. for some time 
Um, but then there is, of course, this other side that is a spiritual evolution, which is a different thing. Mm. Different thing than when we're dealing with um, medical indications. Yeah. Can you break down for me? So my mom was here this past weekend um, <clears throat> for a baby shower. And uh, my sister has been really curious about... Um, doing a psilocybin journey. And so we were, Caleb and I were both talking to her about it and kind of sharing our experiences. And my mom was overhearing the conversation and it was explained to me and, and I don't know the science of this, so I would love your breakdown of this, but it was explained to me that one of the powers of psilocybin is that it has the capacity to help rewire certain neural pathways that are in the brain. So our brain is made up of whatever concrete grooves and psilocybin can shake up that concrete and help us rewire, um, certain neural pathways. And my mom asked the question, she said, well, what, what, uh, what's the promise that it's going to help you rewire in a positive way? What's the, what's the promise mm. that psilocybin is going to help you rewire something in a more effective, uh, uh, po- positive way as opposed to really taking you, you know, down this negative pathway. So one, I guess my question is, is that a correct uh, explanation of psilocybin? Does it help you rewire certain pathways? And then two, part two, piggybacking on her question, what does allow us to, to, to make those, those positive pathways? Great. So the first part is how a number of these psychedelics works is, is once you have a material on board of the dosage, there is uh, what pe- some people call it ego death, but really what that is, is the downgrading, downregulation of something called the default mode network in our brains, which is effectively the, the center that houses the fight or flight mechanism. And as we grow up, as we're born into the world, as we orient to creating an ego, and oftentimes people think ego is just like, Mm. egotistical ego is an orientation to self that's different than other Mm. this like my name is kelsey ramson this is me and my life story and and it's this ego and so uh you know as a human experience a large part of our energy is spent to protect said ego and human right i'd like to stay alive i'd like to believe i'm a good person i'd like you know all this kind of thing we shore up who we are So when we do say psilocybin journey and we downgrade that default mode network and we and we reduce our flight or fight mechanism, we allow access to and connections within our brain. So when we talk about rewiring, it's more just reaccessing. So we're not breaking old roads. We're just providing more on routes. If that makes sense, you know, so if you have have a highway, you're going to travel down that. And the the truth of of it is, and this is the part B of the question, which is, you know, what's to stop us from going down the old road or taking an off ramp onto a more negative path? And, And I think a real disservice in our in kind of the psychedelic advancement is not enough people talking about integration. Mm-hmm. So we can have this experience and we can have all these new roads opened up to us and we can explore hard things. And you can go on the other side of a psilocybin journey and go straight back to your old life if you choose. Mm-hmm. This is not it's not a silver bullet. It's not like, oh, psilocybin journey solved. Moving on. That's not it. And mm-hmm. and I do witness a number of people who don't do integration work, who really within a course of say six weeks, go back to the same kind of routines. 
And so when we talk about integration and defining that for the folks who are listening, that really means um, in these journeys, you come to see and understand new things, Mm -hmm. whatever those things might be. For some people, that may be really challenging experiences that you come to come to see and understand in different ways. For some people, those could be really enlivening and bright experiences that you come to see and know different things in different ways. And then you return to what I would call your typical life on a Tuesday. And none of that, nothing out in the world changed while you were in your journey. Zero things happened. You only return different, potentially. And so then the, then the work happens in how do I take what I came to know, see, understand, and adapt how I choose to show up, my behavior, my witnessing of the typical Tuesday. Mm. And that's really where we choose the different path, the brighter path, the other path. But again, it doesn't make it doesn't make it always the happy path. You know, we're in this like culture where everything is about happiness all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, I'll speak from my own personal experience. I've had a session work that's been really challenging. Mm-hmm. And so coming out the other side, my work, my integration work was to have the really challenging conversations. And to explore the really challenging choices that I made. It wasn't happy or fun. None of that was like rainbows and lollipops. Yeah. However, on the other side of all of that integrating, working through, did come a lighter experience, did come more clarity and positivity. So I, I suppose it, it's kind of one of these like, for everyone, the journey is different. And I wish we had all these really solid and concrete answers but one thing I will say that is uniform across the psychedelic experience from my um, vantage point is this idea of going from uh, clinician and patient to being a colleague in your own care. Mm. So being an active participant in the outcome yeah. is the really different piece around psychedelic medicine work Mm. that's been my experience and that's been the experience of what i've seen so can you uh, elaborate uh, on that a little bit more i find that it's so helpful but yeah yeah i mean so in the traditional paradigm uh, a person has a challenge and they go to a figure of authority who knows better and they seek advice from said figure of authority and the figure of authority is contextually meant to tell them what to do or that's what we're seeking. Yeah. Um, if you go to a great therapist, they rarely tell you what to do. They just help you illuminate your own path. But that's c- kind of rare. Mm-hmm. So, and the human condition is that, you know, we tend to not want to take responsibility for outcomes. We'd much prefer someone saying, do this and that, and this is what's happened. And you go, great, I'll do that. Um, so that's a traditional model we're used to. And even pharmacologically, like take this pill, it does this, you will get that. Great, done, easy, and pretty tidy. The psychedelic model is quite different in that you may go to a person of authority who could be a guide or a therapist, whatever the case may be, but they don't hold themselves in the position of authority. They're, they hold themselves in the position of safety or wingman or a guide or whatever. And when we think about even, you know, to use a, an analogy, if you go up a mountain with a guide, they don't do the hiking for you. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. They're just like, here's a path. 
and we navigate based on what we find in the terrain, given the time. And I've been in this on this mountain before, but I can't tell you exactly what's going to happen. But I'll be here with you. And I have some things in my backpack that I know we might need, but you better be wearing your own shoes and have your own water supply. You know, like they're not doing it all for you. Yeah. Um, And so that is really the difference of the psychedelic experience. And also in that when you are in those states, when you're in the deeper work, you really are, no one can see what you see. Yeah. No one can feel what you feel. So you are responsible. Uh for being present to it in a way that you can't ask someone's opinion. Like, Hey, right now we're watching the part where X, Y, Z happens. What should I do? It's not available to us. So there is just something inherent in the way that it unfolds that, that makes up, puts us behind the wheel of the Ferrari to say, you know, where would you like to go? Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. And I, I can imagine as I'm hearing you speaking, the necessity or the importance of really being willing to um, take responsibility for your life when mm. you decide to engage with psychedelics. Uh, mm. I, I'm just, I'm thinking of like, as you, I'm hearing you're saying this, it's so important to be, I guess, in a season of life where you really are willing to um, put yourself in this position of asking the, of doing the integrating work, which mm-hmm. isn't always necessarily easy. So, I guess uh, my question is, um, is there a right timing for psychedelics or how can you know if uh, psychedelics might be a good option for you or how do you know if it's not necessarily a good option for you? I mean, I suppose for so many people, the coming to the psychedelic work is such a different path, you know? Um, so when, okay, so in simple terms, when we know it's not right for you is when you have a contraindicated either clinical condition, like you have a history of uh, bipolar to the degree to which you may have, um, you may have borderline personality disorder. Like there are a number of, of medical conditions where it's just not, it's not right for you. Um, and anyone who would actually be sitting with you who knows their stuff would be able to screen you out and say, this isn't, you know, this isn't going to be additive. When we know it's, it's right for people. I mean, that's what we're here doing the research Mm -hmm. to proof. Um, So for what indications, what medicine is best, et cetera. But if we look to traditional practice, I think there is this sense of, of um, a calling or a coming to or, a, you know, the time being right. I know a lot of people who have this have this idea that um, what we call them psychedelic naives. Mm. So these are people who've never done a psychedelic yet college or on a Friday night in high school or, you know, whatever the story might be. And this sense of the great unknown and the, and the cultural narrative around the psychedelic experience, like we're all going to be at a Pink Floyd concert and the walls <laughs> are going to melt and like, it's going to get super trippy, man. Um, is not really what we find in the clinical setting. It's a very different thing, even outside of clinical settings when we're doing deep therapeutic work in the traditional practices. Um, the experience is quite different. It's an inward with most of the psychedelics, with the psilocybins and the MDMAs. And there are some protocols that are communal, like a San Pedro or mescaline kind of a protocol. 
But so to answer your question specifically, how do you know if it's right for you? I suppose my recommendation might be um, talk to some other people who've done the work to really understand what the work is, Mm -hmm. not what taking drugs is Mm -hmm. or not what the psychedelic experience is, but what the work is. Um, because most people find once they're into the psychedelic experience, they're in Yeah. and this sense of being afraid of what could happen kind of dissolves. That's, yeah. p- that's a part of the wiring of the brain that goes away. So once you're in, it's pretty rare that you will be fearful. You may witness things that are hard, but that, but that kind of pre anxiety of like, I've never done yeah. drugs, um, which is quite funny because I, I love this like classification of drugs. Uh, because aspirin's a drug and like, I take drugs every day. I take, I drink so much coffee. It's wrong. <laughs> and, um, but, but, but nevertheless, I digress, I digress, you know, my coming into it was really, I'd done all sorts of therapy, did all the things a person does and really wasn't getting to the places where I needed to resolve. Like I was kind of on this, like the atypical pharmaceutical track of, um, this, a forever future or the atypical kind of therapeutic trap where, where I needed to go was different. And um, I had a friend who by the lottery of life was dealt to me in undergrad. And she wound up being working with a group up here called Theracil, who were some of the first to provide psychedelic treatments. Mm. And we were having a classic girlfriend heart to heart. And she said, why don't you check out psilocybin therapy? There's a bunch of good work going on at Johns Hopkins and I was trepidatious myself, yeah. even though I had a, you know, rich college history. I thought, oh, like I'm a 40 year old mother of three. I'm like a responsible adult now, you know, uh, this is a day yeah, I can't go doing drugs, but which is kind of hilarious in a way, because the, it's, it's not uncommon to hear that narrative. Mm-hmm. Like, and um, so I did a read a lot of the research and ultimately spent a lot of time trying to find someone who I would trust with my mind. Mm -hmm. It's like the one good thing that I've got pretty consistently is a brain. Some might argue. (laughs) Um, And uh, yeah. And so ultimately that, that was my path to the work was just doing, you know, exhausting all my other resources and going, okay, this seems to work for some people. It probably can't hurt from here. Mm -hmm. And I found someone I trust and, and talk to a lot of other people who I respect their opinions about the work. Mm-hmm. And so funnily enough, I will share this little anecdote. I remember showing up to my first therapeutic session with a little bit of bravado, like a little swagger, like, yeah, I got this, you know, <laughs> I know psilocybin, what's up. And, um, and I had never done a therapeutic dose yeah. of psilocybin before. Which and is how big? Well, I don't know exactly the specifics of the dose, but like, you know, oftentimes in the industry, people talk about somewhere between like three to five grams or more, depending on, I do know that I metabolized psilocybin really quick. So, mm-hmm. I, so anyway, and, um, so we're sitting in the circle. It was a group session. There were 12 people and it's early in the morning, about six in the morning as it's meant to kind of like come on. 
And we're all there and where they're playing like some kind of calming music. And when it comes time and you feel uh, let the medicines on board, you're meant to put your hand up and then they take you to your own room. We each had our own rooms in this uh, facility and everything's set up and the eye guards and the headphones and the music track and the recording device. Cause you're meant to, in this protocol, record everything that happens in the room. If you are speaking during mm-hmm. a session. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, I'm going to be the last, you know, have you ever been put under and they're like count backwards from 10 and you're like, oh, I'm making it to three and I get it like eight. Yeah. And I was the first person to put my hand up. Wow. I, I go, I just, you went. I was in the, the kaleidoscope of color. It's like a freight train. And that was, that was, that was the beginning of my journey with a different way to heal, mm. um, which did, you know, it even for me in the moment, I was like, all right, girl, here we go. Mm. And part of, part of it though, truly is, are you really desirous of healing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Come on. Mm-hmm. You know, there is that moment, I think for a lot of us who engage in this type of work where, when it is possible and you really see the moment of clarity that I don't have to continue the way that I was. Yeah. And that I am really going to be okay. Mm-hmm. It can be scary for some people yeah. to be well. And that was my experience. And I mean, um, this idea of being a whole person who can be seen and heard. Mm really it's a big feeling mm-hmm. yeah it's really big that's Vulnerable. beautiful that's thanks for sharing that yeah it's incredible was oh, go ahead oh i was just gonna say can you tell us about some of the research i'm really curious to know i i heard you talk about it on another podcast but i'm really curious to know you you referenced there's so much research happening around Gosh. psychedelics right now and and i think that that can help uh help alleviate some of some of the nerves of people is that there is science happening around this it's not it's not going to a party and just taking a bunch of molly and having (laughs) having a trip right that's a different thing i mean it's a thing and i was never on someone's parade it's another thing though it's not this thing yes so can you fill us in on some of the research that's happening and some of the some of the breakthroughs that we're seeing in the scientific community around just the power of psychedelics Okay, so I'll, I'll lead with the headline, which is on the cover of the New York Times about a month or so ago was a study um, funded and, and brought forward by a group called the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS. Mm. It's a phase three study. And if you drug development uh, goes like phases one, two, three, and FDA approval. So this is a phase three study wow. utilizing MDMA, Molly, ecstasy, pick your name, to treat PTSD and the results coming out of that study are astounding. Mm -hmm. So they're finding upwards of 67% or more people after roughly a three month course of treatment, which includes a little bit of therapy before so that therapist and the patient can get an understanding, develop rapport and get a, get a bit of a course of treatment. And then three psychedelic assisted psychotherapy sessions. So that's in clinic Mm -hmm with two therapists and the, the, the client patient um, under the influence of uh, MDMA 
walking through a session. Mm -hmm. And in between those psychedelic sessions are therapeutic sessions, which would include some integration work. Mm -hmm. And then after those three psychedelic sessions, some more integration sessions. And that the reason that that is material, okay, 67%, that's a number, it's fine. But, but the difference is with just therapy alone, those numbers drop down into the 20s and wow. sometimes lower. Wow. And so these people are showing real promise. And then we're following up with these people three and six months later, and it's sticky. Mm. So rates do drop off. Some people do return, like I mentioned, to this case of like, you know, um, change in their life. And some of it is substantial. They go back into the same situation. It can be challenging to maintain. Mm -hmm. Um, but those outcomes are like gobsmacking and we can look at other research, like psilocybin research is coming forward. So we're looking across indications like PTSD, depression, anxiety, traumatic brain injury, addiction, alcohol use disorder, obesity, compulsive eating, ADHD, our most recent program, sexual desire, lack of sexual desire in women with MDMA. So there's a lot of research going on with, and, you know, there's a number of psychedelics, LSD, MDMA, psilocybin, ibogaine, DMT. You know, there's like, there's a lot happening in the space. Yeah. And a good, a good part of the research is happening in the States. So if you're, you know, if you're curious about that kind of thing, or you, if, if there's someone who's listening, who's thinking like, yeah, I'd like to, see if maybe psilocybin could work for my depression or yeah, I'd like to see if I can quit smoking using this thing. You can go on um, MAPS website. They're a nonprofit. So they're, they're really quite well-respected and, and very measured. And they list, they stay pretty consistent and, and list all the psychedelic studies that are ongoing. And you, it's, you're going to go below the fold a few times, get your scrolling finger out. There's quite a few <laughs> ongoing research programs Um and Ibogaine, I will mention Ibogaine because the opiate crisis is material mm-hmm. and it's growing. And I, and I also want to, I always want to take a moment to help people recognize that like the opiate crisis isn't just happening downtown behind a building. Mm-hmm. It's also happening in your lawyer's office mm-hmm. and with some of the most well-respected athletes in the game. 100%. Because it's not just, heroin and or you know like pills are a pretty material problem Mm -hmm. and a lot of folks get on them because they came out of surgery for a hip replacement and they never got off of it yeah um and so there are clinics running in mexico utilizing ibogaine part of the problem for for addicts is coming off of it is so painful Mm -hmm. and so a lot of people just don't ever try and get well just because the come down is so horrendous so Ibogaine is showing, again, rates of like 72%, and I'm using air quotes, cure rates. But wow. that is no withdrawal symptoms and no cravings afterwards for up to six months. Wow. And Ibogaine is what? I actually don't know it. What is it? Yeah, great. Ibogaine is, um, Ibogaine comes out of a root that comes from Gabon in Africa. Mm-hmm. And um it's one of the fascinating things actually is there's this guy named Hamilton Morris. He has a show on vice. It's called Hamilton's pharmacopoeia. Mm. And if anybody's curious about this kind of thing, Hamilton is like the Anthony Bourdain of psychedelics. Okay. Wow. He travels around the world. 
He investigates all these psychoactive compounds, exposes himself to them. Like you can watch Hamilton do Ibogaine on the show. So cool. And um, Hamilton's an advisor to us. He's like such a fascinating guy. I love people who are open skeptics. Mm. Like he's like, okay, let's see what it's about. But let's really walk through why and how and, you know, like let's not drink the Kool-Aid kind of here. So the reason I mentioned Hamilton in this uh, and this and this kind of narrative of Ibogaine is most people have only heard of LSD, MDMA, and psilocybin, magic mushrooms, like the trifecta. But there are so many other psychedelics on the planet that we're just kind of in our little echo chamber of North America going, that's what, that's what exists. <laughs> but Ibogaine has been used in Africa for centuries. It's a part of historical tradition. And, um, and in fact, to the, it, you know, it's been used so well that, the plant was actually endangered. Mm. So part of the promise, I think of, of drug development psychedelics as well is creating non-dependence on those cultural systems. So the cultural practice can continue in its way, shape and form and then medicinal practice. So we actually, have, we have synthetic Ibogaine produced in a lab, not extracting anything from the planet. Mm. Um, and so that's what we're we're working on. But Ibogaine is a is a smasher. Five MeO DMT is crazy stuff. Like mm. not a lot of people know about. Like the traditional model would be toad venom, and but then they're killing all these toads, and the toads are near extinct. So people are going taking it into the lab and trying to figure out how do we create DMT in a way that we, you know, either aren't farming a bunch of toads and killing them for the sake. Mm. or depleting what's in nature and um yeah dmt is it's up there what's interesting about that it's really fast acting so part of the challenge for the psychedelics industry is how do we take these molecules and get them into practice Mm. like when you're used to a regular one or two hour therapy session with your therapist but now you're going to do a psilocybin journey and that's like eight hours yeah yeah you know yeah it's not that's not typical, but the promise of DMT is it's really fast acting. Like you're in and out of a DMT session in 30 minutes. Wow. Wow. And so what's real? It's not kidding. And DMT what happens with there. DMT? DMT is, um, I'll, I'll describe an experience uh, of DMT. So DMT is often like inhaled. Um, so you inhale it. And within seconds, like, and maybe not even as quickly as you like that example of counting backwards when you're at the, the yeah. gospel, but under like, you don't even, don't even try Don't even, you're not, getting, <laughs> you're not getting to nine. You might get the number 10 out and then you're gone. And, um, you know, people talk about experiences of immediately experiencing the universe, mm. the oneness, the soul, um, being being so in themselves but um not not fixated on maintaining the sense of self so as to protect it Mm. but so able to uh, a lot of the dmt experience is um it's analogous to you know when you just when you you know your best friend and you're wherever you are and something happens at that place, you're at the bar and, and something happens and you observe it together at the same time. And you can look at each other 
and you there's nothing to say you just already know that mm. it's that sense of that knowing mm. in the places that you might need it mm. that's so beautiful that makes me emotional <laughs> <laughs> that's so beautiful um but you know for some people hearing things like that with the with the more fulsome explanation like i saw um, my soul as a piece of origami. Mm. And I was folding on myself and transforming. Mm. So to someone who's never done the work is like, that sounds like a crazy thing. What are you talking about? Mm. Your soul is, a, is origami, mm-hmm. right? That's mm. going to help me. Um, but the truth of the matter is when we're able to connect to a different way of seeing those moments can be very transformational and, and quite, um, they, they just allow us a new narrative. Absolutely. That, you know, perhaps your soul is capable of change. Mm-hmm. Maybe for that person in the moment, this idea of being in evolution as a person was what they needed. They needed some form of permission to recognize that every one of us is doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the next thing they saw was actually a constellation of origamis and all of them were changing. Mm. Um, and they were just one among them. So, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of translate yeah, into no. normal words sometimes yeah. what that can look like, but for a lot of people, and I think this is why the research, and this is why so many people are talking about it now is that we're in a state then culturally where, people are more open to this idea of like being, I'm a sovereign individual who is my story is mine and my healing may yeah. be my own. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm ready to explore that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Just the knowing part is so beautiful. I think like from all the years of my own therapy and integration work, and especially after leaving uh, the NFL, like tasting the knowing, it's been like the summation of like, I'm like, this is what's available to me is to have this deep inner knowing that supersedes any intellectual knowledge or what I think logically should happen and just have and reconnecting with this knowing what is done for me. Mm. I don't know why yeah. I'm saying that, but I'm from to experience that within like, you know, a 30 minute dose of DMT and to have that experience, it's just so profound and the implications of it are so radical and so transformative. Do you know what's fascinating? So hearing you talk about the NFL, um, have you ever read a book called Stealing Fire? No. Okay. Awesome. So <laughs> on my list. If you're you, you should maybe consider it. So Stealing Fire starts out and it's talking about um, Navy SEALs and how they recruit for Navy SEALs. And I'll get these numbers a, a bit wrong, but basically let's say there's 2,000 guys who apply for one job. And they all think it's about being the fastest and the strongest and having the highest IQ and doing, you know, like checking all the boxes, jumping all the hoops. And of course you have to do all that. And then the moment when they know that you are one of them and not dissimilar from when you're playing team sport like that um, at the highest level is when you experience the oneness and the uniformity with the team and that, there is a sense of mutual knowing. So when these Navy SEALs go in for a special ops and all the lights are out, it's middle of the night, they have to be infinitely quiet. They can't make a sound. They can't even signal. They can't do anything. They just must know and sense mm. and move together. 
and correspond and respond instantaneously to the changes and adaptations. And that's what happens when you're playing sport at that level. You can see these individuals who just have a knowing and they're almost so in state that if you ask them after what happened, they almost can't even recollect it. Yeah. Yeah. You got to watch the playback and be like, yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I was there. But in the moment they're connected. There was, it's just so, I remember one moment in college, actually, I went to uh, the United States Military Academy at West Point, and I was um, a, the starting uh, strong safety on the team. I'm teaching my wife football. <laughs> I'm <laughs> trying. Wife, I'm trying to learn. <laughs> Not learning and, very well. <laughs> uh, and um, I remember in a game that I had, uh, I broke a, a record when it came to the amount of tackles happening in the game, and I remember one specific play, and I remember... Uh, coming off the field and my backup saying like how did you know and the only answer I had is like don't you know that that's where the ball was going to be like Mm. it was such an innate Mm. deep knowing that that is where I was supposed to be Mm. and that is where I was going to make the play and it just guided me Mm. and I've ever never truthfully until you're saying this never really connected the dots or saw that as how I would see that now today. Mm-hmm. Um, like I see that as like this deep connection, this union, this this divine, this remarkable presence and being guided by something beyond myself and participating in this entire mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. that's happening mm-hmm. simultaneously. Because that's, I think, on the other on the other side of all, a decade of healing work I've done now, that is what I'm experiencing with my life naturally. Um, and now like it's... At, I don't know, I'm getting goosebumps to think that I actually tasted that in the midst of so much pain and so much mm. brokenness and so much heartache and despair and shame uh, that really were the controlling narratives of my life that time. That like love is so big that it was still present with me in the midst of all of that. Mm. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's beautiful, yeah. It's true. Uh, And I love the part that you said, like being a participant in, I think that's maybe where some of this narrative that happened before was like peace, you know, love and chicken grease or whatever, and that it would just do it for you. And what we know now is that when we're informed by and able to access that knowing and participate in driving it forward. It's kind of like the flywheel, you know, then it really gets going when you become a participant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I think, you know, I think this piece around those access points and it doesn't just happen in sport. It yeah. doesn't just happen, you know, when you're a Navy SEAL, it happens in the common person's life mm-hmm. um, occasionally, but we see it more often in people who have access to extremes and who have survival that sense of real survival is at stake Mm -hmm. um, that we create with our minds, even though you weren't going to die on the football field that day, your sense of, you know, this is survival. Mm. Uh, And so do deeply rooted and connected to like identity and all sorts of things. It's pretty, I mean, what are we talking about? (laughs) Time to be alive. It is the best time to be alive. I'm kind of obsessed. Would your, um, 
Would you say that the psychedelic experience for people is like the reintroduction to that deep knowing that is present inside of all of us that might be buried underneath mounds of past unresolved trauma or shame or grief or pain or pain bodies? Um, is that really what is happening as we engage with different psychedelics and integrate it? Is that we're really actually, because I, I'm asking, because when I access that knowing, it's like I reclaim my life. I, I, I reclaim my self-confidence. I, I reclaim my, my sense of self. Mm-hmm. And now I'm the one in that driver's seat of the Ferrari, right? And there's right. this knowing that supersedes willfulness mm. or logical, like, right? There's a deep knowing that like, I'm in now, I'm in this dance with life. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a rhythm, there's a cadence to my life and I'm in sync with it. And it's good because it's my life. I don't need to, it to be Johnny's or Sarah's life. This is my life. Totally. And even when it's hard, you're capable. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's yes. another beautiful unlocking of that experience. I would say that, you know, um, there's this guy named Timothy Leary who was kind of a part of the counterculture back in the old days. And he was one of the professors at Harvard that got kicked out when there was all the LSD experiments and they were doing them on their with their um, graduate students. And, and there was a he had a right hand man. Um, there's actually a great movie coming out about Timothy Leary's, like uh, b- being played by Woody Harrelson. Oh wow! Yes. His right hand man um, was this guy, Alpert um, Richard Alpert, who became known as Ram Dass. And I give you a mm. little bit of this narrative because those two people went into the work at the same time. Wow. And one Timothy Leary kind of went heavy into what was a bit more indicative of the late sixties and Ram Dass went more into the spiritual nature and really exploring. And one of the things he, he wrote this book called um, be here now. And it's a kind of a pivotal piece of work in this, in this atmosphere. It it was um, it's like the Michael Pollan of that time. Uh And, uh, and Ram Dass says, we're all just walking each other home. Like the sense of returning home to self. So when you were talking about this idea of returning to self, um, I I feel like that's always been a component part of this work, Mm. this returning to the self that is not the big I ego, but this more quiet, Mm -hmm. subtle, lowercase I that is um, a willing participant in this life. I know, um, from my own story and I, I, Oh, I never really like tell other people's stories. So I'll just yeah. tell my own story. It's the Please. one that I I can tell is, um, a moment where I saw myself and I was about seven, eight, I don't know, ish roughly. And I looked myself in the eye and it was, I think the most profound moment I have ever experienced in my healing work. Um, because I looked at her and I was just like, oh, girl, mm. you are really something to behold. Mm. And and I'm so sorry mm. for all of these things I stuck on you. Like you have to do this and you're meant to do that. You can't do this and that would be better. And this would be something. And all the judgment I took on you, like it was kind of like this motherly sense of looking mm-hmm. at your child going, oh, my goodness. And I, and I, and I, I, I think coming out of that for me was that to your point, that return to kind of self 
obviously I'm a 44 year old woman. I'm not a seven year old girl. You know, I know a little bit more than I did then, but there's a lot of knowing I lost or I kind of locked up along the way that she always had. Um, I was, yeah, I, I think, I think that's an experience that a lot of people have in a variety of ways. For me, it was seeing myself, mm-hmm. um, you know, mm-hmm. it's beautiful. That's incredible. Yeah. I feel like both of us have had uh, those coming home stories in different capacities. I, um, yeah. I always, I, I always say that I was 33 when I started walking back home to myself for 33 mm-hmm. years, I was walking away. And uh, at 33, I had this experience where my body gave out on me and I turned back around and I started to come back home to myself. Um, and I think, I think along, that, along that journey, psilocybin has actually been really helpful in, in the journey back home, in the walking back home, in the understanding those pieces of my story or of my narrative or of my belief systems that somehow got picked up and that aren't, aren't helpful <laughs> and that need to be let go of. That's wonderful. It, it's a common, like, it's not, I think that's one of the things too about this work and that when you have so many signals that ring similar across the, you know, people's mm-hmm. experience, mm-hmm. Um, there is something to it. And yeah. I, you know, I, uh, I, I know we need to do the research and I'm, and I'm glad that we are because a lot of people need the science and in order to get access for people, yeah. we're going to need insurance coverage. Like, if, you know, the yeah. practicalities of, of the rollout are all still real. Um, but I think the promise is pretty uniform. And mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, a little bit of time that we have left, can you yeah. just briefly uh, maybe explain for the people who are listening um, because it's all of the conversation now. It's all the rave now. Is this idea of microdosing? Mm. Uh, yes. And I will say that from my own experience, like I've never done large amounts of psilocybin. It was actually a thirty-day protocol on microdosing. Um, that was my first interaction with psilocybin. That I would say, like, just greatly shifted the trajectory of my life. And I have a moment of sitting in my driveway, getting out of the car. As I was shutting the door, I felt like this, and I was like, holy shit. I was like, I'm here. <laughs> the place that I've been trying to reach my entire life, I'm here now. Mm. I'm here. And I had this just overwhelming sensation of being here now and realizing that, mm. holy shit, all these people out there, all the ancient gurus and the the mystics and the, the, te- the great teachers that would always say the one thing that would piss the hell out of me, and it was everything that you're looking for is with you, mm-hmm. right? Or where you're trying to go, you are. Like the ground you're trying to attain, you're standing on right now. And that's never computed with me. I've never mm. felt that. And my microdosing experience was my first experience of like, <gasps> the ground that I'm trying to t- attain is the ground that I've been standing on this entire time and I'm here now. Mm-hmm. And it's really been, um, as you can imagine, just really a profound experience for me. Um because I think leading up to this, my journey has been this constant striving mm. and ambition and hustle and need to arrive, to get to this place. But this place has been accessed through deeper measures of surrender and letting go of my favorite fo- poet and philosopher is David White. 
And he has a, a line in a poem that says to give up all other worlds except the one which you belong to here and now. So mm-hmm. as I've actually learned how to let go of who I think I should be or where I think I should be and learn how to radically accept who I am, where I am, right? It's allowed me to reach this place of recognizing that I'm here. Mm-hmm. What I've been looking for this entire time has been with me this entire time. And then I, I say all that because I think uh, microdosing was a pivotal tool um, in my journey of back home to myself. So I just want to tie into two things that you said. One is this idea that some people can hear that and think we're all just dropping out and chilling out and being radically accepting and not advancing. But <laughs> yeah. you draw this contrast Absolutely. between the hustle and the advancement and the, you know, the way that it is done and what we just heard you explain. Mm. But I'm going to ask you a question, which is, do you think you move farther faster now? Absolutely. <laughs> right. Yeah. So this is the Absolutely. piece that I yes. think is really important for people to hear, yes. which is um, the unlocking of the truest self is kind of like windshield wipers on the car. Yes. You're in the Ferrari, but the windshield wipers aren't on and it's raining really hard and you can drive that baby as fast as you can, but you will not cross the finish line as quick as a guy for whom the windshield wipers are on. Yeah. That, that's kind of that moment. So when we, so then the second thing is talking about microdosing. So I have two opinions on microdosing. One opinion is the research isn't looking super promising. Okay. However, the second opinion is it depends on what we're researching. Mm, mm-hmm. So what we know is that like anything, you can have a beer and not feel the effects, right? Mm-hmm. If you're not drunk, but you've still consumed a beer. Something is happening in your body because once you have the second one, something more happens and there's a stacking effect. Just the same as you can eat three chips or eight bags, different outcome. <laughs> so you can have a small dose of psilocybin and something is happening that is subperceptual. Now, there is a wide spectrum of what we call microdosing. So some people are talking about 0.1 gram, 0.2. Some people go all the way up to 0.4. I can tell you for myself, at 0.4 grams, I'm, it's no longer subperceptual. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm salivating, I'm sweating more, I know what's happening, my pupils are dilated, like I'm on. Um, so I think there's there's a couple important pieces. One is what's what is an actual microdose? Yes. Mm. So by definition, we would say a subperceptual dose. So you notice nothing different in your operating capacity, like in the moment. The second piece around this idea is um, you might consider it to be a persistent low dose. So again, that that's different for everyone. Um, because this idea of a microdose can scale. Mm-hmm. So for some people, at 0.2 grams is still subperceptual, but you do have twice as much psilocybin on board. Um, and I think, with just the number of stories I've heard, the real world evidence stacking, that there is something there. Mm-hmm. But it's just about what are we trying to measure yeah. and how can we kind of like, how do we find this? If it's subperceptual, it is really hard to know 
what the right dosage range is and what we're really trying to get out of it. And there's so many different protocols, four days on, three days off, seven days on, two days off. Some people are like, I microdose for four months. And then, but then you build up a tolerance. build up a tolerance for it. And so it's just the math hasn't been done in a way that I think I can answer that yeah. academically. Mm. But personally, I would say I'm a supporter, you know, I believe that there is merit to it. And, and then there's also different molecules of microdosing, you know, some people are studying LSD, low dose LSD. Um, there, there's, there's just a huge body of work out there. That's a little bit to be done and a little bit, if it's working, it's working. Like we don't necessarily need to know for sure how, Provided again, it's like in a safe context and informed by people who can be of service. Um, but microdosing is, you know, it's been around for a little bit of time and it's a super big phenomenon at the moment. And you see so many places online, like you can buy psilocybin microdose online with these gray market folks. Like it's a huge business. Mm, yeah. It's mm-hmm. a gigantic business. Um but yeah. as a publicly traded, totally legal organization, uh, we can't partake in those kind of things. Exactly. It. It's been interesting because I find that, and, and the person who introduced me to the plant medicine is a medicine woman out of Colorado um, oh. who really talked about the importance of the spiritual dynamic to the plant medicine. And the intention. Mm. And the intention mm-hmm. to it. And and I can honestly say that I, I felt like in my first experience when I when I said yes to it that it chose me, mm. and there was a real visceral response in my body that I felt that like oh no it picked me it chose me and I'm saying yes to this, um, and I had a real spiritual experience mm. of really experiencing um, kind of the awareness behind my awareness the the God mm-hmm. this consciousness this this union this oneness um, just from microdosing. And I say that because I started to microdose again recently and not that it's not having any of, I don't know, but my experience is completely different. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, for me, it's always been like, is there actual cognitive benefits from microdosing that data can back up and research says Mm -hmm. yes to it, which is great. Or is this more of a spiritual experience um, that it's just one time experience and that's all I needed to shift to give me what I needed to get to continue this journey back home to myself as I'm forever on this journey. I mean, I think it's both. Yeah. It's so individual, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, and, um, and I think that's, what's tremendous about it is we are in a time of personalized care. Mm-hmm. We are so in good. a time where we know that our self, mm-hmm. my body is different than your two bodies my human experience is different than your two. So this idea that one thing and our experience with that one thing is always going to be the right thing mm. in the right dose for the right, like I, I think that's the beauty of the medicine because yeah. there's so many options, so many ways to it and so many ways to explore it yeah. both yeah. from the spiritual to the clinical that um, I don't know. I mean, again, I'm just so, so much of the time I wake up and I think, oh my goodness, if you told me 20 years ago, this is what you're going to be doing. I'd be like, that's not possible. It's not even going to exist. Like, you uh, know, equally as likely I'd be flying to the moon. But it turns out 
here we are. Yeah. Um, here we I, are and what incredible work. I want to respect your time, but yeah. I, I, I've been taking your functional mushrooms for a while now uh, from Mind Cure. I love Ooh. the product. It's amazing. But I was just recently on there and I'm a full-time uh, public speaker, keynote speaker. Um, and for the last few years, I've been speaking traditionally in schools, um, in universities and high schools, um, just helping students deal with the, the onslaught of pressure and need to perform and achievement pressure, so on and so forth. And I was so happy to see the, the functional mushrooms for teens, uh, that yeah. product. That's really great. It's amazing. Thank you. It's, um, yeah, I mean, for us, going into the functional arena was kind of important because, you know, that's where a lot of people start mm -hmm. where a lot of people start is to go, okay, maybe I'm not ready to do the whole yeah. psychedelic or anything, but maybe I'm just curious about adaptogens or nootropics or things that might help. And um, yeah, that's really great. Yeah. Uh, last question is if you have one book to gift Ooh. to people for the rest of your life, what's that one book? Well, geez, <laughs> I mean, recently I've been doing a lot of, um, the drama of the gifted child, mm. which is not like a really easy read. It's kind of clinical, but I think it speaks to a lot of the folks who tend to be in my neck of the woods. Mm. Prior to that, I gave a lot of the untethered soul. Mm, beautiful. Beautiful. It's a great one. Great. I, I think that's been coming up so much recently. I'm going yeah, to take it off of the bookshelf and reread it. <laughs> it's a goodie. You know, the four agreements is yeah. another, I feel like I'm just like riffing. There's a new <laughs> book out actually that I, a dose of hope. It's awesome. Okay. Um, it's by Dr. Dan Engel and it's, um, it's about MDMA therapy and Love it's it. a, it's a based on a real life story. So it's a really, it's a really good one. It's timely. So I'd say, yeah, maybe that's probably dose of hope. Awesome. Amazing. I'll check it out. Kelsey, thank you so yeah. much. This has been, I'm like, I could listen to you all day. Talk yeah. about drugs. <laughs> and I, uh, I sincerely mean this, that I know speaking for both of us, I just want to just honor you publicly honor you for all of the incredible work that you're doing. And I know that the, the wild amount of success that you have uh, experienced in your life did not come without a cost. Um, so I just want to say that we deeply honor you and just sincerely thank you for the work that you're doing and for your willingness to have this conversation. Well, likewise, this is the best. I've had the most fun here I've had in a long you. time. <laughs> it's amazing. Thank awesome. you guys so much. Uh -huh. Thank you. Thank you, Kelsey. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.